Well, um, we try to, on a regular basis, uh, do a question and answer here for uh, the main reason, uh, just because we do long series through books, <laughs> and that doesn't give a lot of variety sometimes, at least in the, uh, the, the uh, tracks that we run on, uh, but also just we realize that, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity for all of us to sort of benefit together by exploring some more common questions that, that believers have. We haven't done one in actually quite a while, so we're a little bit overdue. The format's pretty simple, um, just whatever's on your heart and mind, just feel free to ask it from the floor, and, um, and I'll do my best to take, uh, take us through the Word of God and bring some context for us. I have uh, one question, or two questions that pre-submitted, but I'll start with this one. I think it's a helpful little question. Uh, how do you prepare for prayer, and how do you clear your mind for prayer? Well, that's a common, common struggle. Uh, has been for me for much of my Christian life. I think I've mentioned here in the pulpit before, the Puritans always talked about praying until they pray, because they recognize that it's not just a switch that you turn on and you just immediately go to the Lord. And I think that's why it's helpful, you know, as we look into the Scripture, our Lord gave us a model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's probably better called the Disciples' Prayer because He gave it to us as disciples to offer up to the Lord. And it can be recited really in a matter of seconds. And so we understand coming from the lips of our Savior who Himself prayed sometimes for an entire evening uh, that this isn't the totality of what He wanted us to pray, but it's more, more of a skeletal framework. It's more of an outline, if you will, of the way that we ought to approach the Lord. And he gave it to us for a very specific reason. He gave it in one case in the Sermon on the Mount and in another case in answer to a, a question on how to pray. And I think that the helpful part for us is the recognition in the Lord's Prayer of how he begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is, that's a, that's a prayer that focuses on God and on His name and on His glory and on His person. And I really think that's the way that every prayer ought to begin. That's what we try to model in this pulpit. That's what we try to model in our times when we pray together as elders. That's what we try to model in our Tuesday morning prayer groups. what we try to model everywhere we go that we really begin prayer by framing two things in our mind. We frame who God is and we frame who we are. I will often begin my prayer time by just reciting those attributes of God, those characteristics of God that I've been reason, uh, recently studying, um, whatever it might be. If it's God's purity and His holiness, I'll talk about that God, you are pure, you're more pure than gold refined in fire a thousand times over. There is no spot, there's no blemish, there's no area of your character that can ever be called into question. And I will just sit there and recite to God His character. And what I'm doing is I'm framing, as He tells us here in the Lord's Prayer, who God is. And after doing that, I try to frame who I am, which we generally call confession. I will confess to the Lord my sins and my weaknesses, confess to the Lord my frailties, and that goes beyond just 
a sort of laundry list of things that I might have done wrong that day. It really goes into the very statement of my character and my my uh, my humanity and and finitude. And those are the things that I think we take to the Lord. You go and look into the book of Psalms. Interestingly, I think that's the model that you see. This is the essential two-part character of the Psalms, which are prayers given to us to help us aid us in our worship. They are over and over again exaltations of God's character, God's works, and then over and over again references to our own weakness in the midst of trials. And so that's, that's essentially the way that I prepare for prayer. Now, that's, uh, if you're going to do that, it presupposes you know something about God. It presupposes you know something about sin. And so it presupposes that you're spending time in the Word of God. And so if you're feeling a diminishing in your prayer life, it may be a direct corollary to a diminishing in your time in the Word of God. So if you're not bathing and saturating your mind with God's Word on a regular basis, discovering who God is, then you might be finding it more difficult to approach Him. and might be finding it more difficult to, to pray to Him. Really, after those things are taken care of, then all the other needs that are out there just flood into your mind. You don't really have to go searching for them. You just pour out with compassion for people who are weak and frail and trembling and struggling. You pour out with those things because you have filled your heart with the heart of God. So I hope that's helpful anyway on the issue of prayer. Uh, I'll hold my other question until later. If we have any from the floor, we'll take them. Yes, Tom. Great. And I'll try to rem- remind me, I'll try to repeat the question into the microphone so we have uh, full recording. You ask about deacons and the structure of our church. Well, we have, uh, most people don't realize, but we have a deaconette in this church. Uh, you don't know it because we don't call them deacons. We call them servant leaders. And the traditional way that our church has approached uh, the subject is we identify those who are entrusted with public service. We recognize every Christian is called to serve God. And in that sense, every Christian is a servant of God. But that doesn't mean that every Christian is considered uh, a deacon in the proper sense in 1 Timothy chapter 3, because 1 Timothy 3 names two offices in the church. It names overseers and it names deacons. And it tells us very specifically when it comes to deacons that they must be tested. That implies a differentiation, a discrimination between one certain group of people and another. And and really what we believe, what I believe, is that these men are discriminated uh, uh, you know, from everyone else. They're, they're differentiated from everyone else because they're entrusted with public duty. They're entrusted with something that represents the church to the community. And so for us in this church, uh, what we do is we... Everyone who serves in a public way for the church, that's, that would be the people who are up here singing on the platform, the people who lead our Sunday morning Bible studies, the people who lead our small groups. Uh, for us as elders, those people need to be living according to the standards listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, you know, at some point we may choose to call those people deacons, but right now we call them servant leaders 
Um, the, the terminology is not that important, um, but uh, you know, we just want to we want to be clear uh, as clear as possible. So um, we may be uh, even doing some review of that in in the coming years. Any other questions? As a well-taught congregation, maybe. I have a one question that was submitted also beforehand. It says, "What's the extent of Satan's influence on a Christian's life? Can you clarify that Satan cannot read a believer's mind, and that he cannot put thoughts in our head? If that's the case, what can he do, and how does he thwart the purposes of God in the life of a believer? Could you explain for us again what you believe happened in the case of Ananias and Sapphira?" Well. Um, yeah, there's a, there's so much confusion about demonic activity and uh, the role that Satan plays in the life of a believer. There's a few things that you can say, I think, pretty definitively. First of all, Satan is not omnipresent. Uh, it isn't necessarily that you're doing battle with Satan personally on a regular basis. You may be doing battle with one of his demons, but we're never told that Satan can be all places at all times, the way that God can. He's the only one who's omnipresent. And nor do we believe that Satan is omniscient. The fact that Satan knows all things at all times. Only God has that capability. And not only that, but we believe that only God knows our hearts. Only God knows what's in our mind. We believe that because Scripture tells us in the realm of humanity at least. We go to First Samuel chapter 15 and we read Samuel or the Lord telling Samuel there that God looks on the outward man, or excuse me, we look on the outward man but God looks on the heart and God distinguishes it as his prerogative to be the only one who really has the ability to look into the hearts of men. And then you go over to a place like First Corinthians chapter 2 and Paul builds on this as well. In that, in that passage, he uh, is talking about the spirit of man within him. Really talking about how God's were, or God's thoughts, I should say, have been revealed to us. But he says, he says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So in other words... He talks about how we have exclusivity in terms of our, uh, in terms of our knowledge of what's in our own hearts. Uh, by those two statements, and by also what we know of Satan in general, we don't suggest that he or his demons can read our thoughts. You'll find occasionally those people who, you know, um, are always worried about that, always worried about whether Satan can can read their thoughts, and they feel like they're doing some sort of sparring battle with him directly. Well, he may not be able to read our thoughts, but he can influence our thoughts. That's what's taught in Scripture. And interestingly, you see places like Ananias and Sapphira, or even like Peter, whenever Peter's there in Matthew chapter 16, and he tells Jesus, no, you're not going to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Or Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, there in Acts chapter 5, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? 
And you hear those sort of generalizations about Satan putting thoughts in our mind. But I don't really believe that he's directly planting thoughts as if he's whispering in your ear some some verbatim ideas. I think what he's talking about is the overall influence of Satan. If you were looking at Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, what it tells us is that everybody who's an unbeliever is under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Every one of us born uh, dead in trespasses and sins, every one of us following the course of this world, every one of us under the prince of the power of the air. So, So if you're spiritually dead, you're spiritually unresponsive, that's simply a way of saying you're unresponsive to the things of God. You are by default responsive to the things of Satan. And he is, according to Ephesians, directing your life. He is directing the course of your thinking. Not by necessarily whispering things in your ear, but by, by his systems of thought. By the way that he constructs ideologies. By the way that he constructs worldviews. All of that is around us, and that's why Second Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that, that Satan is the god of this world. We're not talking about polytheism where you have competing dualities in the universe, a good god and a bad god, but what he's saying is that God has given over this world and the systems that run this world, the economic systems, the political systems, the educational systems, all of those systems, the philosophical systems that dominate this world are spawned by Satan. We know that even the theological systems that dominate the world and dominate false teaching are spawned by Satan. 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that in the latter days there will be doctrines of demons which dominate in the church. So with all that in mind, we understand we're doing warfare with Satan. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but are spiritual, he says there, they're, they're mighty in God. Get over to 2 Corinthians. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are of divine power for the destroying of strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to, to obey Christ. You shouldn't read that and imagine that somehow these thoughts are are being planted in your mind and that somehow you have to be individually rooting out things that are, like I said, whispered in your ear. What he's talking about is you need to be resisting the strongholds. You need to be resisting the arguments. You need to be resisting the, the, the frames of thought that come against you every day. Every day when you go to work, people are telling you that the life is just about this world. Every day when you go to work, people are telling you it's just about how much money you can make. Every day when you turn on your TV, people are telling you it's just about being uh, more attractive and having the right kind of surgeries and doing the, all of the Botox. And every time you turn on your TV, they tell you it's all about glamour and it's about revenge and it's about greed and it's about whatever and you're opening up your mind to be bombarded with systems of thought that do not arise out of Scripture. They arise out of Satan's system. 
And so I think when when Peter tells Ananias and Sapphira, Satan has caused you to lie against the spirit. I think what he's saying is you have given way to Satan's priorities. You've given way to Satan's system. You have given way to greed. And greed is what has been spawned by him. Now, you may press that and say, well, how exactly does he get those systems of thought into the world? I'm not really sure. I know on occasion demons possess people. I know on occasion demons have taken up residence in people and they have become the spokesmen, the mouthpieces of God. So so maybe somewhere in world religious systems and political systems, there are actually demon-possessed people who are the source, the fountainhead of some of these wicked thoughts. It wouldn't surprise me a bit. In the recesses of some Hollywood studio or the recesses of some theological liberal seminary or the recesses of of some philosophical school or political institution that you have demon-possessed people who are the fountainheads of all this. wouldn't surprise me a bit. But what you do with on a daily basis is not primarily that. It is, it is the byproduct. It is the system that's been poured out. And, of course, the way to combat that is to continually be cleansing your mind with truth, bathing your mind with truth so that you can take every one of those thoughts and bring it back into captivity to Christ. So when you see uh, the, 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 the movie that glamorizes revenge and, he, and makes a hero out of the person who gets even, you immediately are instructing your minds, that's a lie, that's not true, that will lead me to destruction. And you do battle with, the, with Satan in that way. Other questions? I'm sorry. Yes. Well, I wish I had my Greek Bible in front of me. I could tell you uh, maybe specifically. Um, I mean, I know that David does his homework, and so, uh, you know, he, uh, he might be a, certainly a good person to ask after class on that. I mean, the thing to, I think the thing to, to pr- probably note out of that is, is the reality that God is, does have passions. God does have deep emotions, we sometimes think of him as some sort of impersonal force or something like that, and and um, you know this sense sort of uh, uh, I guess you could say cold and and distant personality. But you look here and you look in other passages of scripture, and we're given every impression 
that God feels emotion. Um, people struggle with that because they don't, you know, they, they wonder, well, if God can't change, how can he be moved with emotion? Well, I, I can't fully answer that for you. All I know that is, is that he is, or at least the scripture gives us the impression that he is. And, um, you know, uh, as far as the connection between those two particular verses, I can't say, but, you know, I think when, when he comes to Lazarus's tomb, um, you know, the fact that there's grief there, there's sorrow, there's pain, isn't the grief and the sorrow and the pain of the world. I'm sure that's what David was trying to bring out. You know, he wasn't moved in the way that some person who lost a loved one might be moved and grieved or something like that. Um, as you look through the passage, certainly what Jesus uh, uh, emphasizes to them again and again is their, their failure to believe. Their failure to believe in him. He's the resurrection and the life. Um, so if you come over to chapter 13, you know, when he comes and what he's basically doing is confronting unbelief there with the betrayer. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the Greek words there, but I'm sure it is at the same root, the kind of grief of our Savior when he experiences unbelief in any of us. I had a question over here. Yes, Sherry. Does God give up on them? Well, uh, there's a few passages that really talk about apostates. Hebrews chapter 6 is probably the the most well-known and kind of addresses the issue. It's disturbing for a lot of people when you read about it. Uh, Paul is urging these, these folks who he never actually credits them with being believers, as you read through Hebrews. They're ones who he says again and again have heard, they've heard, they've heard, but they haven't necessarily obeyed. And so when you come to chapter 6, you know, he's saying to them, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity or completion is another way that you could say that, uh, the word teleos there, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it's impossible in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance." There are a lot of people who, first of all, think that this is a passage dealing with believers. And they think it's the passage that justifies the fact that you can lose your salvation. You can fall away. But if that's the case, I think that we would at least have to conclude you can only do it once. Because he says pretty clearly that once you fall away, there's no coming back. And most everyone who believes you lose your salvation thinks that you can regain it time and time and time again. But it's really not talking about people who lose their salvation. It's talking about people who, who come close to believing. They surround or, or they're, they're involved with the community of faith, with the word of God, with all those things. And then they still harden their hearts. And I think 
this is at least one way of talking about apostasy. It, I think it speaks to the issue that there's a desensitization, desensitizing in our hearts. That when we, when we feel a certain amount of conviction, a certain amount of pricking in our hearts and we don't respond to it, uh, then our hearts, our consciences are weakened. They're eventually defiled. And then having been defiled, they eventually are seared. And the scripture speaks about the searing of our conscience, like a branding iron that kills all the nerve endings in the skin. I can't fully explain the spiritual things behind it, but scripture certainly gives us an indication that that's what takes place so that you can, you can uh, preach the gospel to them and their attitude is, you know, look, I've heard all that. And they don't want to hear it anymore. You know, that's a real danger in false conversions and easy believism is that you, you convince people to make some shallow profession of faith and then they, what we call apostatize, they fall away from the faith because they were never really taught the gospel to begin with. And it really does become more difficult to preach to them in the days to come. But the thing is, we don't know when that is. You and I don't know when that, that is. So we continue to preach and we continue to pray and we continue to plead with those people. Continue to hope that maybe God would be gracious to them and perhaps do something that would plow up the fallow ground of that conscience and maybe make them once again ready to hear the truth of the word of God. And, um, you know, we just have to continue to be faithful to share the God, God's word as, as opportunity rises and, and leave that, the, uh, the, the judgment to him as to when that is, when, when, he, when they cannot be brought back into the place of repentance. Is that helpful? Yes. Yeah, well, uh, it's a good question on Bible translations. Um, you know, first of all, in terms of the King James uh, versus the more modern translations, it really has to do with the manuscript family. King James, of course, was translated in 1611 by a committee set up by King James in England. And at that point, they were using all of the manuscripts or the best manuscripts that were available. But honestly, there was only about 100 years of manuscript research behind them. Uh, the 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 whole language of Greek had essentially been lost to the Western church. They had completely reverted to Latin. There were no Greek scholars in the Dark Ages. And so they had to send people to, uh, to the Middle East to even learn Greek so that they could bring it back to Europe in the early, uh, late 15th and early 16th century. And so it was really just that, that one century that we had what we consider today manuscript work being done. And so by the time they get around to translating the, uh, the King James Bible, um, it was translated as much by the Vulgate Latin as it was by the, by the New Testament Greek. Well, as you can imagine, from the time of 1611 till the time of 2011, 
there's been quite a lot of archaeological evidence that's done, been done. There's been quite a lot of political uh, uh, changes that have opened up uh, the, the world of information sharing. And so manuscripts have been almost, I think, quintupled from the time that they translated the King James and gives us a much clearer picture of what some of the early manuscripts taught. And so that's why uh, we endorse a more scientific rather than a more just raw traditional approach. We don't hold to a Bible version simply because it's tradition. We want the best research into what the original manuscripts said. And uh, so we, we endorse those manuscripts that hold to the best science of the day, the best manuscripts. They just came out with a brand new version in Nestle Elan 28, 28th edition of the Nestle Elan Greek Bible um, that just incorporates the, the latest science that's out there and lets us know, you know, what passages are best represented. Now, out of that, that's the manuscript background. Out of that then becomes translation philosophy. And translation philosophy is really on a continuum, everywhere from absolute paraphrases you know, you have the, uh, the message out there where you open up the Psalms and instead of, you know, exalt the Lord, it's yay God, you know, and it's very colloquial. It's very difficult for me to read reverently. And then all the way on the other side, you have very rigid wooden translations where almost every Greek word is given an English uh, equivalent and it's kind of difficult to read even in English. Uh, but we certainly gravitate more towards that because... We want to we remove as much barrier as possible between the reader and the original language. We don't want the translator or the paraphraser to be making judgments theologically about what the text meant. So the more literal the translation, the better uh, in our book. So we, we gravitate more towards that um, not, not paraphrase or dynamic equivalent, but more literal Translation, And in that family of literal translations, you really only have three. You have the King James, which has the manuscript issues. You have the NAS, and you have the ESV. NAS and ESV, I think I read somewhere, are 96% identical. When you're going to open it up, sometimes you can't tell the difference. I had professors who were on the committees to translate both, some on the NAS and later on some on the ESV at the Master's Seminary. I think they're both, uh, they both approach the translation philosophy the same. For me, personally, I use the ESV because when I go to the mission field, the NAS is unavailable. As you can imagine, something with North America on it is only sold in North America. So if I go to Africa and I'm encouraging guys and I'm teaching out of my Bible and, and I want them to have a Bible that's similar to mine, the only option I have is something like a dynamic equivalence, like an NIV or an ESV. And so for me, it just simply gives me more international uh, uh, reach to be able to use the ESV because I still go to mission trips and teach quite regularly on the mission field. Uh, ESV has a much larger market share. NAS is less than 1% of the total market that's out there. Some people think it actually may not be tr uh, even printed uh, very much longer because it's so difficult to keep actually uh, profitable. They have such a small market share. So um, there's not a material difference in the translations. It's more a preference and a pragmatic issue. Other questions? Yes? Yes, go ahead.
It's a great question. <laughs> you get the star for the night. Well, how much time do we have? Um, it's a great question because expository preaching uh, for a long time has been a buzzword. Everyone says they do expository preaching um, because what it basically has come to mean is just in the minds of people, biblical preaching. When, when people generally say, I do expository preaching, what they mean is, I preach from the Bible. Which, for many of them, that just means I read a verse from the Bible. And, and then they just sort of launch out and say a whole bunch of stuff, whatever they, they want. But uh, technically, expository preaching means you are expounding or, or bringing out the meaning of the text which I believe must mandate exegetical preaching. That is to say that you have to wrestle with the grammar, with the context, with the culture, with the history, in order to understand historically and grammatically what the text is saying. In other words, I don't think that you can, you can really get the meaning out of the text unless you're willing to do that work in the text. That necessitates that you frame your passages that you're preaching in their broader context. It necessitates that you address grammatical issues occasionally in your preaching. It necessitates that you are dealing with a portion of text which is, uh, I guess, particular enough that you can deal with all of those matters. Now... I have some good friends that, that uh, advocate what they think is expository preaching, but they may preach a whole book of the Bible in one sermon. And I know what their heart is. Their heart is to get the message of that book and preach it to the people of God. And they think in that they're bringing out the message of the book. And there is a place occasionally to do that, to do a survey and an overview and and um, it's difficult because, I mean, these are dear brothers, dear friends of mine in some cases. But I fear that if you do that on a regular basis, that you're going to not be forced to grapple with the particular details of every verse in the book, which then build the scenario for the overall message of the book. In other words, I can't know the whole without knowing the parts. I can't fully understand what the book is about unless I do wrestle with every one of the details. And so it's going to force me to get in there and to do the detailed work. Listen, honestly, if I was going to preach the book of Hebrews and preach the whole book in one sermon, it would take, I don't know how many weeks to prepare that message. I couldn't do it on a weekly basis. The only way for me to know how to do that on a weekly basis would be I would necessarily have to skirt the details. And so for me, expository preaching demands that, that you go piece by piece, frame by frame, par paragraph by paragraph, really, through the books of the Bible. That's the only way I know how to bring out the meaning of the text without inadvertently putting my own presuppositions onto what I think those building blocks are, which is, in my opinion, the, the inevitable byproduct of people that aren't willing to do the, the detailed grammatical work and the detailed uh, contextual work and the detailed 
historical and cultural work behind every one of those things. There's another thing that drives me in this as well, is I just believe God's word is deep. I mean, I, I just believe that every, every phrase, every sentence, that, that even after I spend 20 hours every week studying, I still haven't plumbed the depths of it. I, I wish I could remember the Spurgeon quote where he says, you know, the, the, the more you dive in, the deeper you see that it is. And so I never want to just kind of sweep over the whole thing because I'm always so drawn into the particulars of God's wisdom and God's glory revealed to me in just even the phrases. And then I look into the passages of Scripture themselves and I look at Jesus and whenever he taught the, the, the Bible, I mean, he often would pull out a, a particular phrase from the Old Testament and teach it like that. Or Paul even in Galatians chapter 3, whenever he's talking about the, uh, the nature of covenants and he even gets down to making a distinction of, of an individual word there. He says in Galatians chapter 3 how God had made a promise to the seed of Abraham and he clarifies. He doesn't say seeds. He says seed. And so what Paul's doing there is he's, he's explaining the difference between a plural and a singular. He's doing grammatical work whenever he's teaching. And so I just feel compelled, if I'm going to communicate the Word of God accurately, to get in there and do that kind of work, to, to, to explain, at least, first of all, in my own heart, and then to the people who are hearing the Word of God, this is what the, what the text means, and this is why it means it. Now, if I were to do a big flyover of the book of Hebrews, I could tell you what I think it means, and I could maybe give you some application but if you're an inquisitive mind, and you should be, if you're a Berean, and you should be, you ought to be asking, where did you get that? Why, did you, why do you say Hebrews is about that? Well, it's going to necessitate me saying, well, let's go back to chapter 1. And this is what chapter 1's about. And then you're going to ask the question, well, why do you say chapter 1's about that? And I'm going to have to say, well, because verse 1 is this, and verse 2 is this, and verse 2 is this. In other words, the only way for me to avoid you just taking my word for what it says is to get in there and show you how I arrived at the conclusions, the interpretation that I have. And so, uh, again, I just don't know how to do expository preaching in a way that exalts the authority of Scripture and not the authority of the preacher unless I deal in detail with the text. So that may be more than you were really asking for, but, uh, but that's, that's anyway, that's, that's what drives me. Yes, Pat? They're a professing homosexual, but they're not a practicing homosexual. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professing liar, but not a practicing one, hopefully. <laughs> um, maybe I am. I just did. That's just... <laughs> um, I would look at that as a discipleship opportunity. I mean, I would just look at them. I would, I would certainly not throw it back in their face, but I might tell someone that says to me, look, I'm a professing uh, homosexual, but not a practicing homosexual, to say, yeah, well, great. You know, we're all sinners. Uh, you know, we all 
We all were born sinful, but the good news is that when we come to Jesus Christ, we're changed. And so while I was born a sinner, Scripture graciously tells me now I'm a child of God, and you are too if you're a, Christ, if you're a believer. And so that means that you have been sanctified and that you've been given victory over whatever it was that used to dominate your past. And while we acknowledge that there may be occasional uh, resi- uh, residue, I should say, from that old life in the flesh, it certainly isn't something that ought to dominate us anymore, our thoughts, our minds, or our lifestyle. And so, you know, just an opportunity to disciple that person to say that we put off the old man, we're renewed in, our, in the spirit of our minds by the Word of God, and we put on the new man, which is made in the likeness of true holiness in Christ. And, and if they accept that, I mean, it's evidence that they, that they accept the Word of God, they are a true believer. If they don't, then they, they may be angling for just an opportunity, an excuse for an ongoing pattern of sin that they don't want to repent of. And, you know, uh, you'll just have to discern whether or not that's the case. That's not just speaking on homosexuals. I mean, you can find people who are uh, philanderers who say the same sort of thing, uh, people who are drunkards who say the same sort of gamblers, all, same sort of thing. Uh, they'll tell you, well, you know, my, da- my dad was uh, this way, and so I got his gene, and I'm this way. Well, I mean, sure, you got your dad's genes, but Christ is more powerful, and he can change you. So I would just take them to the truth of regeneration. The truth of regeneration is that that the power of the cross breaks the power of sin. Romans 6 would be the epicenter, that though you once were slaves of sin, you've become obedient to that doctrine that was preached to you. Having been slaves, you now are free. And tell them, yeah, the good news is you're free from that. This is what you were, but now you're free. And you can also go to a place like, you know, he, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, which says that some of you were, well, some of you were, among other things, homosexuals, but now you've been washed, but now you've been sanctified, but now you've been glorified. And that's really, I know, emphasizing the, the behavioral aspect. This is the way you used to live. But it's also talking about the positional aspect. You've been, you've been sanctified, you've been glorified. Those are positional statements as, as well as uh, practical statements. All right, well, we've run out of time. I appreciate your questions, uh, good ones tonight, and we'll try to do this uh, maybe sometime not too far in the future. Let's stand together, be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for a chance to think about your truth tonight in so many different ways and so many applications. We know that it is the truth which sanctifies us, which tells us who we are and tells us who you are. And so, Lord, we know that we need to dive deeper and deeper into it and cleanse our minds and saturate our minds with it. I pray that you would do that, not only by our times together gathered as a congregation, but also in our personal quiet times daily as we open up your word in the morning and over lunch or in the evening. May we continually be saturating ourselves with that pure and spotless and unadulterated truth which cleanses our hearts. Do that, Lord, and draw us closer to you. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.